Notice that we are in 1 Timothy this morning and not the Gospel of Matthew. I want to just tell you exactly why that is. The session uh, knows that we are coming upon a season where we need to be talking about elder and deacon nominations. Uh, We know that that needs to happen in the next few months. And so in anticipation of that, one of the things that that we offered and that uh, we discussed was the fact that we should have a sermon series that touches on the, the, uh, the office of elder and the office of deacon. And so one of the best books you can go to, probably the best book in the New Testament you could go to for this is the book of First Timothy. And so we are going to take a jaunt away from Matthew for a little while, uh, probably until the month of May. I don't know if that distresses you or not. Uh, to know it would be that long of a departure, but until about the month of month of May, we're going to preach through the book of First Timothy, and then once we finish First Timothy, we're going to come back to Matthew, and so in a, at a specific moment in Timothy, I think near the end of January or so, we actually will uh, be in the passage where Paul talks about elders and deacons. After which, we're going to just be announcing to you, even though this is not the announcement, this is the announcement of the announcement. It'll be opening for. Uh, uh, nomination of elders and deacons. But in the meantime, we want to hear from God's word in the lead up to that. What does God say about the office of elder? What does he say about the office of deacon? What does he say about the qualifications for those offices? And so uh, we felt it was most appropriate to do so by going through a book that deals with this exact question. And so this morning we are just in the first two verses of the book of First Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. And so hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus by command of God our Savior and of the Lord Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to the treasures of your word today? Send your spirit, we ask, so that we may find the life that you have for us in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The book of 1 Timothy is what we call one of Paul's pastoral letters, pastoral epistles. These are, these are letters that are written from an older pastor, an older elder in the church who is seasoned, but he is also nearing the end of his ministry. He is probably in his 60s by the time he has written this letter. And these letters are written to a younger, less experienced minister in the church who is still relatively early in the early years of his calling. And so Paul is writing this letter because Timothy needs help. Timothy needs instruction on how to continue Paul's mission at the time that this book is written. So Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, but we don't call this the Ephesians part two. We don't call this the letter to the Ephesians because it's not written necessarily to the church at Ephesus. It's addressed to Timothy. It's a direct letter written to this man. And yet there's still so much here that's actually for the church more broadly than just young Timothy. Um, He had known Paul at this point for about 15 years. Timothy was deeply trusted by Paul. 
You actually see this all over in Paul's letters, how much he trusts Timothy. At one point, he sends a letter to the Philippians, and he says, I'm sending Timothy. And then he gives his reason why he's sending Timothy to the church in Philippi. And the reason he says is, I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. So at once, that's really encouraging, right? To hear that Timothy is like that. And on the other hand, you realize how short-handed Paul must have been. To have no one else that he trusts the way that he trusts Timothy. What a thing for him to say about Timothy. And yet you also realize that uh, churches have always had limited resources. You have limited people. Um, Here is Timothy. Timothy doesn't just perform. What does Paul say about Timothy? He says, this is a man who actually loves and he actually serves. Um, He really cares. He is, he's like-minded with Paul. He's, he's listened to Paul. He's, he's taken in the things that Paul believes, and he has made them a part of himself as well. And God has used Paul in Timothy's life in this way. Now it's almost like he's an extension of the ministry of Paul because of the investment that Paul has made in him over the years. And so Timothy has this weighty task. Very few people really understand the weightiness of the task that's before Timothy unless they've stood in Timothy's shoes. Um, He's serving as a teaching elder in Jesus' church. Later today, we're going to be at the installation for Charlie Shaw as he's installed as the pastor at Hope PCA. And as I was preparing the charge, I'm going to be giving the charge to Charlie and the congregation. And as I was preparing that, it took me back to the day that I was ordained uh, I don't want you to realize how, how recently this was, but it was on the evening of October 6th, 2016. I just passed my anniversary yesterday. And when I was installed as an elder in the church, I was asked several questions and as I took the vows of ordination. And just I want to read you some of the questions that were asked. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church Whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account, that you have to be prepared to suffer. Are you prepared to be persecuted? Are you willing to take charge of this church? What a terrifying question to ask somebody. And do you, relying upon God for strength, promise to discharge to it the duties of a pastor? If you know what those duties are, then it is instantly daunting. And once you say yes to those questions, something happens. As a man, you are either immediately crushed by the possibility and the responsibility, or you continue to live in reliance upon Christ. You get to choose. And in that sense, the weight of that never landed upon me really until I was ordained. And that didn't, that didn't happen by, by lack of trying. I, I'm a preparer by nature. If you get to know me very well, you will know I prepare. I prepare and prepare. Uh, for future. And so when I was in seminary, I wanted to know what General Assembly was like. So I would go to the General Assembly every year and I would sleep on the floor in hotel rooms with whoever would let me go with them. Uh, And I would just, I wanted to know what General Assembly was like so that when I went, then I'd be ready. Um, I spent lots of years leading up to being a pastor, imagining what it must be like so that I can have a realistic mindset of, of all of it. And yet, until you actually do it, it's all very abstract and maybe a little romantic, which it shouldn't be, but it was. Um, 
that then you take those, you are ordained and you take those vows and that sense of things change. And so instead, this actually becomes your life and it becomes your responsibility and it becomes a weight that you carry. And then over time, hopefully very relatively early on, you start to learn and remember, this is not mine to carry. This is Jesus's church. Um, Jesus is the one who puts elders in the church. Uh, I don't carry the elders. Uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to, sit, to do is paint you a picture, and it's a picture of what must be on Timothy's shoulders as he's getting these letters from Paul. Timothy needs this older man in his life who will be a mentor to him, this man who has walked in the shoes that Timothy is going to be walking in. He carries a weight, and he can't do that on his own in isolation. And, and Paul has done that for Timothy. He has, he's helped him ever since he met him in Acts chapter 16. That's the moment when Paul meets Timothy. And he's, he's discipled this young man so much that now when Paul thinks of Timothy, he sees himself and he sees his own beliefs and he sees his own ministry. And he sees now and he says that in these words that Timothy is his spiritual son. He says that in verse 2. He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. He says, you're my true son. This morning, I I want us to focus on this idea of someone being a child in the faith. You know, obviously, this is not a biological thing because we know who Timothy's father is. We know that he was a Gentile and we know that Paul's not his father. And so here's what's really special about this idea, though. A son has a resemblance to his father. A son looks like his father. He looks like his influences. He looks like those who've invested in him. And it's interesting to me that he calls Timothy his son. Think about this. Paul never calls him his brother. It just seems like a strange thing. Christian men call each other brother. Uh, In the letters, you see them call each other brothers. He never calls Timothy his brother. He calls Timothy his son. I read through all Paul's letters. He doesn't call Timothy his brother. And he refers to him in all of his letters. You would think at one point he'd slip up and say, Brother Timothy, no. So this letter is an expression of this special kind of relationship which stayed consistent between this older, more mature Christian and this younger man who is learning to fulfill his important calling in this life. It might be easy to think of this letter as a letter that's only for elders. You know, hey, Pastor Parker, why are you preaching this for the whole church? Couldn't you just, you know, take this to a session meeting or something like that? Um, Or we might be tempted to think that it's only for someone who's in an identical situation to Timothy. But that's, that's not true. Because at the end of the day, think more broadly. This is an older Christian investing himself in a younger Christian. These are, there are some things here that are unique to elders, but I want to fixate today on this idea that Paul presents, this idea of someone being a spiritual father, someone being a spiritual son or, or daughter this morning as we begin this book, and especially in the language that Paul uses here. It is really important for young Christians to have fathers and mothers in the faith. It's important for older Christians to have someone that they can pour themselves into, someone they can invest themselves into, someone that they can be a spiritual father or mother for. One distressing trend that you see in the church, and I suspect this has perhaps always been a problem, but it's certainly 
a problem in the modern moment that we live in. And that is this trend of churches wanting to, to have sort of to cater to a certain group. So you have a church, you say, we're going to make this church a church that is filled with young people. And so you build a church with that in mind. So you make, make the service oriented around being young. You make sure the activities are oriented around being young. And you have these churches across our, our nation which are very age-segregated. Um, I don't know if this is a problem in societies where there's persecution. You know, for example, I wonder if in, Af- in Afghanistan this morning you have a church where they're going, oh, you know, I showed up at church today, and even though there are guys outside with AK-47s, uh, you know, looking to see whether or not we're going to worship today, this church just has too many, too many people over 50. I think I'm going to go somewhere else. Like, I think this is a uniquely modern American consumerist problem where we do sort of have the luxury of going, oh, I'm such a better fit over there or or something like that. Um, But here's the trend, right? Christians say, look, I don't want to go to that church. There aren't aren't enough people my age there. Um, This happens on both sides. This happens on both sides of the age gap, right? Sometimes young people show up at a church and they do a head count. They say there are too many gray hairs here. This must be a dead church. It's sad. It's sad how quickly people can decide whether a church is dead. I declare this a dead church. I've had so many people tell me, I visited that church. It's a dead church. I go, Why? Well, they sing hymns there. Well, come on. Yeah, get a better metric. Um, you know, they, um, and they go find a church that seems to have more young Christians in it. And, um, and they assume the youthfulness means that it's not a dead church. Um, unless you think I'm picking on young Christians, I want to pick on older Christians too, just because my rule is just offend everybody. But um, older Christians can make the same mistake. You know, I have seen with my own eyes churches where young Christians are interested in coming. They show up, but they're seen as a threat uh, to be resisted in the church. Um, I, I have enough friends who are pastors now that they'll say, this is the strangest thing. We have young people showing up at our church, and we have older folks in the church who don't want them here. They say, they're here. These kids are trying to come in, and they want to ruin our perfectly good church. We liked it just the way it was, and they want to change things. Um, They almost want the church to be like a museum that's frozen in time, that captures the, the moment that we think of as the glory days. And we just want it to freeze there. Can we just freeze it and... And so there's this distrust of the young, and there's a sense in which young Christians aren't welcome in those situations. So these problems can go in various directions, as you can see. I've seen it. I've heard tell of it. They're not exaggerations. Um, Here's what I hope, though. I hope that we will intentionally desire to be part of a church. I I think Evergreen is like this that is a good mixture of of the young and more experienced saints. I don't know how to use euphemisms, and and I'm good at that. So if if you're at a church where everyone is sub-30, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a dearth of people who have walked with the Lord for more than a decade. You'll just be surrounded by baby Christians, right? Because I was under 30 once. You're a new Christian if you're under 30. You're a new Christian. Um, you're going to have a lack of people who have experience. You're going to have a church who's full of people who are all new to the faith, and they're going to run the church like a bunch of people who are new to the faith. And, and, and who will they go to for advice? Who will teach them what they did when they were raising up little ones, for example? Um, 
uh, or what it was like raising teenagers or what it was like having kids go off to college. Who's going to share the hard lessons that they've gone through? Um, we need others who are young and who are old in the church. And so an age-segregated church is not good. If you look around this room and you ever notice a variety of ages that are here, I hope that you, that you do that with gratitude. I hope you do that with thankfulness. It's a, it is kind of God to give a church babies and children and teenagers and college students and young adults and middle-aged adults and seasoned adults. It is a blessing to have us all here, all right? Because we all need each other at all of our different times and periods in our lives. Um, I hope you believe that. I hope you, I hope you feel that way. Um, and if you don't feel that way or you don't believe it, I hope you're willing to be convinced of that. Paul calls Timothy my true child in the faith. And here's one thing I'm very well aware of. I'm well aware this is part of one verse. This is a passing reference that Paul makes. If you are reading a synopsis or a summary of the first Timothy that someone's going to explain to you, no one's going to say the point of the book of first Timothy is for Christians to have mentors or to be mentors. I am very well aware of that. And yet this passing reference is bigger and more important than it appears because this whole letter is an expression of this relationship that exists between this younger Christian and this older Christian, this more experienced father in the faith, doesn't that show us at least that it isn't just an incidental thing? When he says, you are my true son in the faith, he's saying, this is why I have the nerve to write the things to you in this letter that I do. Because we've got this kind of relationship where I know you're going to listen to me and I know that I'm going to say something and you're going to receive it and you're going to take seriously what I have to say. He includes this line for a reason. He includes this line because it matters. Are you an older Christian to some younger Christian? Is there some younger Christian who, who talks to you, who looks up to you, whether it's your parent, whether it's another uh, person in the church? Um, younger Christian, do you have an experienced saint you can go to for advice and direction? I remember the earliest years that I was a Christian, I used to go and talk to uh, uh, John Miller. And John Miller would give me all kinds of advice. He'd point me to books. I was even a nerd just in the very beginnings. I was like, where are the books? Uh, <laughs> he'd say, C.S. Lewis over here, you know. And I would read that book and then we'd talk about it. And um, I had someone that I could share those things with. Do you have someone like that? If you're older, are you doing that for a younger Christian? Uh, if you're younger, are you seeking out? Do you realize that you need a mentor? I think some of us wonder, what does it look like to, to mentor someone? What does it look like to be mentored by someone? Does this letter have anything to help us with that? And I think this letter includes the sum total of the answer. But, it, but if you're just looking at this letter as a whole, you're looking at how Paul did it in part. You're seeing Paul's model. How did he mentor this young man? So here's what I want, want, want today. I want to address two groups. I want to address the spiritual fathers and mothers among us, or at least the potential fathers and mothers among us. And then I want to address the spiritual sons and daughters among us, or the potential spiritual sons and daughters among us. Those are our two points today, the fathers and mothers and the sons and daughters. Now, I don't have clearly delineated lines that tell what age someone is a father and at what age someone is supposed to be a son. So uh, I'm just going to be a little bit arbitrary here. You'll see in a bit. 
Um, but nevertheless, the fact that these, these uh, boundaries are sort of hard to, to, to elaborate on, I suppose I'm sure of one thing, which is this. All Christians need mentors and they need helpers in their Christian walk. And all Christians, once they, once they have some experience under their belt, they actually don't stop needing someone to invest in them. But they need to also be investing in others and sharing with others and helping the next generation of churchmen and churchwomen. So let's look at that today. Let's see what Paul might have to say to both of these groups as we begin this letter. Now, keep in mind, I have, I'm so self-conscious... What I like to do is to go through the text and go, hey, here's what this verse says about this, what it says about this, and what it says about this. And instead, I'm going to cheat today. And everything I'm going to say is going to come from the rest of 1 Timothy. So we're going to sort of look at these verses, and then we're going to look out at how this father-son dynamic plays out in the course of how Paul writes to him. So let's begin with a word for fathers and mothers in the faith. If you've been a Christian for a few years... I'm going to be a little arbitrary, but let's say 15 years or more. Let's say you've been a believer for 15 years. Um, I would consider you someone who may be in this group. Now, there, there could be Christians out there who are still drinking milk after 15 years. They're drinking spiritual milk and eating spiritual baby food, and they're, they're not ready to invest in someone else. But let's say you've been a believer for some amount of time. You've been sitting under the Word for years. You read your Bible. You're familiar with the Scripture. The Lord has been helping you to grow in your prayer life. You've not reached perfection but you have become well experienced in repenting of your sin. You've become experienced in confessing to others when you wrong them. Let's say that you're somebody who knows a thing or two about these things. If you've been walking with the Lord and you know what it is to follow Christ, you should probably be investing yourself in the lives of younger saints who have not followed Christ as disciples for as long. This is is actually good for you, um, and it's actually good for them. And on the one hand, it's, it's good for you because I've seen and I've learned over time that teaching others and investing in others takes effort, it takes energy, it takes prayer, it takes time, and it takes more study. So when you help someone else, you're helping yourself by growing. And so the more you do these things, the more you grow. If you've ever taught Sunday school, you can relate to this. Just talking to those who've been uh, helping with Sunday school uh, across the is it street parking lot uh, on Sunday mornings? Um, I have heard from them. I've heard them say, I'm learning things about the text I did not know before. By, by investing in the children, I am learning the text better. I am growing because I'm investing in this other person. This is actually one of the reasons the session really wanted to get Sunday school going here at Evergreen again, was this knowledge that as you, as you have a teaching congregation who are learning to teach each other, you have a congregation where one by one, people are growing deeper so that they can serve everybody else. And if you talk to someone who's teaching Sunday school, I suspect they will tell you, I am growing through the process of doing this. So in other words, positively pouring yourself into others has a way of growing you and growing them. It's a, it's a, it's a net benefit for everybody. Um, men have a need for mentors. You know, as, as godly and well-equipped as Timothy was... I mean, even as he's writing this letter to, to Timothy, Paul says, I can see myself in you. I can see you, my, myself reflected in you. And so you might look at Timothy and go, ah, this is a guy who doesn't need any more letters from Paul. 
And yet he needed someone who has run under a hail of stones and who's lain half dead after being chased by people who wanted to kill him. He needed someone in his life who had, who had done things he was ashamed of and knew how to come to Jesus with his sin. And Paul was the kind of guy who could model that better than anybody Timothy knew. Timothy has an unbelieving earthly father who's a Gentile. Who is he going to go to? He needed a man in his life to model for him, to show him what does it mean to follow Jesus every day. We need these models. We need these models. We're supposed to teach each other. Um, I think sometimes we, we find ourselves thinking the only people in the church who should be teaching each other and instructing each other are the elders in the church. And I definitely think that that uh, is generally true, especially when it comes to the pulpit of the church. And yet you also have passages like Romans 15, 14, where Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome, and he says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you are filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So he's not just writing this to the elders. This is for the Christians who are in Rome. And he says, I'm satisfied that you have enough knowledge that you should be able to instruct each other, teach each other, and share the knowledge that God has given to you. Christians are to disciple one another. They're supposed to instruct one another. Um, in, this is true of the women in the church too. In Titus 2.3... Paul says that the older women should be investing in and teaching the young women in the church. That Paul says the older women should be teaching these young women how to live out the Christian life. He says they should, the older women should teach what is good and so train the young women to live as Christians, to live as wives. So this is, this is what I'm talking about in many respects. I think that we see this reflected in, in the Titus 2 ministry here at Evergreen. Right? where the, the design of this ministry is for the women of the church of all ages under the oversight of the session to be opening and explaining the word of God to one another, praying for each other, working out how these things are so and how they should be lived out on a daily basis. Um, but here's something else really valuable about this passage in Titus 2.3. It shows us that you can invest in the spiritual life of a younger person, even if you're not a pastor or an elder. Right? Because Paul says that the women should instruct each other. Well, none of those are, are elders. By the way, preview, that's two chapters from now. We'll get to it. Um, but the, whoever he's talking about here, they're not elders, and they're instructing each other, and they're teaching each other. Um, I think many times Christians pull back from serving. They, they, they pull back from throwing themselves into the life of the church because they say, that's for the pastor to do. Uh, they say that's, that's for the elders to do. And, and that is true of a few things like preaching the word and administering the sacraments. But our, our calling as elders is not to live out the Christian life for you as church members. That's not our job. My job as the pastor is not to live the Christian life so you don't have to. Um, and in many respects, the work of pastors and elders is to train up Christians, to bless each other and, um, in the truth. We actually want a church that looks to Christ and leans upon Christ and isn't focused on, on just the elders. The elders are not actually the centerpiece of the church. Jesus is. We are, we are meant to be almost these unnoticed servants. We're meant to be like these signposts who are pointing you to Jesus. 
So if you are one of those who need to be investing in younger Christians, let me give you a few principles from the text that will help you. The first is this, be available. One of the most valuable things that you have, even more valuable than money, is your time. Um, We all have limited time on this earth. Um, My wife and I sometimes joke, seriously, it's November? Like, um, when I would... You hear from somebody who's in their 80s and they'll say, your life just flashes by. I still feel young in here and I feel old out here. Um, And you just think, well, this is something that all all octogenarians sort of learn to say. This is sort of a cliche that people say when they get to a certain age. And here I am, I'm 39 years old and I want to start talking that way because I can't believe I feel young in here and then I feel old out here. And I know that now what you all have been talking about, and it's not a cliche, life is going to go by really fast. Your time is valuable. Your time is valuable. Your weeks disappear like that. You, you show up at one place. You show up at another place. You look at your watch. Now it's Friday. You can't believe it. Um, and so your time is a scarce resource. It is something that's so valuable. And so every day and every evening, you can only spend a limited amount of time doing certain things. You're constantly making choices, what you will do, what you won't do. You have to decide that being a mentor to younger Christians is worth it for you to invest yourself in younger Christians, to invest your time in them. Paul is modeling that for us. Think about this. He actually spent an incredible amount of time with Timothy, just being around him. Timothy turns up in every chapter of Acts, chapter 16 through 20. He's there the whole time. He gets mentioned in tons of Paul's letters. He pops up in all but three of Paul's 13 letters. So Paul writes 13 letters. He shows up in 10 of them. These are men who spent an incredible amount of time around each other. Now, obviously, some of that time is is men instructing, some of it's discussing, some of it's traveling, some of it's praying, some of it's studying scripture together. These men are doing all kinds of stuff around each other. And so for them, um, one of the things we see is that as, as mentors of young Christians, we should not be intimidated by the fact that we aren't apostles Um, And we may not be able to live up to the high standards like that. But the thing is this, time together and availability is not always spent in intense conversation and study. Um, Quality time uh, is is also important, but quantity of time is important. Um, When I spend time with other men or with elders um, outside of the session meeting, you know, we're not always consumed with the weighty matters. We do get around to weighty matters when they come up, but most of our time is spent talking about life, talking about current events, how our spiritual life is coming along, any issues we know of in the congregation that need to be dealt with. Um, We talk about where we need to change, where we need to grow, how that's supposed to happen. But all of that is to say, if you were going to summarize it, it's being available to each other. It's being around each other. And if you can't spend lots of time with others and you do find that your, your time is limited, then by all means, have an agenda. Right? Have something that you are reading together. Have a game plan for discussion, maybe a, a book that you're both going to read and then have some interaction about, um, whatever that might be. But another way that Paul gives his time to Timothy is these letters. Right? You see this in the first century. See, sending a letter, sending a message to another person is costly and it is time-consuming. 
um, I, don't, I won't go into the exquisite detail, but the process of, of, of obtaining the, the material you're going to write the letter on, writing the letter and sending it to its destination and making sure it actually gets to the person is, is arduous. And you had to do it yourself. You had to, to write everything out yourself. You had to take the time. And the spiritual outcome of Timothy's life is really important to Paul. That's why he's willing to do it. So Paul is showing that by giving his time, being available to young Timothy, um, that this is a major part of how an older man or an older woman mentors a young man or a young woman in the faith. You make this a priority. You say, this is something that matters to me. I'm going to not do this other thing I could do so that I will do this thing that's important instead. You put aside other things that matter to you. You put yourself to death and you say, they are more important than me. You give your time and you're available. Availability. Uh, The second principle I want you to consider when it comes to mentoring is you need to teach and model truth. What does that mean? Well, look, this young person you're spending time with all, well, spends all week long being lied to by the world, being surrounded by confusion, being surrounded by deceptions of various kinds. And so when you meet, when you spend time with this person, you need to be like a compass that is pointing them to the true and the beautiful and the good things. And so make it a priority to be a beacon for them that will show them over here. This is what's true. They're going to lie to you about this over here. The world is going to say this, but make sure you understand the truth. And so this is what's good. Um, This thing you told me that you heard this week, that's not true. Here's how I know. And here's how you should know. So you're teaching them how to think about what they interact with. And you're teaching them so that they can do it on their own later. And, and how we will know is from the word of God. So the thing that we're going to be uh, talking to them when we're talking to them about truth is we're going to be pointing them to the word. And so I'm going to suggest you could do worse when you mentor people than read the word of God together and seek to understand the meaning of the text together. Um, put your faces down in the text and ask God what he has to say to both of you and then model looking at the scripture. So one of the things you do as a mentor is you show them your face in the text. My early years as a Christian, it turns out I was just exposed to really good preaching. I I got a lot of it from the radio. I just kind of, this was back when people listened to the radio. Uh, I, I would just listen to just lots of preaching. And one of the things, one of the people that got a hold of me early on, and you, some of you can relate to this probably, is R.C. Sproul. I always felt like Sproul would make a point and he would say, this is not my idea. Look at this text with me. And he would take you to the text and usually he would look at some small detail in the text, something uh, about uh, some aspect of, of the text. He was very um, careful to make sure to say the details. The details matter. The details are important. And so he was modeling for me as a young Christian, hey, everything in here is inspired. Every jot, every tittle, every little thing. It's the way it's supposed to be. And so I was learning at a very early age to make sure to look at the details of the text because the details matter because God inspired it all. You learn that by having it modeled for you and shown over and over and over again that this is the case and that this person really believes it. 
as we mentor, we need to be doing the same. We need to be pressing this person that we're, that we're mentoring. We need to press them towards the truth. We need to press them towards the word. Um, if you press them towards yourself, by the way, you're going to be sending them off in a really bad direction. So you are not the point of your meetings together. God is. His word is. Uh, one more principle for mentors, and that's this. Teach and model character. I already talked about teaching and modeling truth, but make sure you teach and model character. One of the things Paul does with Timothy is he leans on the importance of godly character. What is character? Character is the person we are, not just the things we believe. Character is the person we are, not just the things we believe. Paul yearns for Timothy to be a good man, not just a correct man. He yearns for Timothy to be a good man, not just a correct man. He tells him to not just believe true things, but to model a godly life. And he urges him with specificity how that happens. You're going to see this in the coming weeks and months, how he warns this young man about the importance of listening to his conscience. He urges him to to live a life of prayer. He tells him not to be always spoiling for a fight. and says Instead, he says, make it a priority to have a good reputation. Right? That's, the, that's the language of character there. Have a good reputation. This is not doctrine, not explicitly anyway. This is character. This is character taught, and it's character modeled. And Paul's, Paul's big on truth. It's not like no one's ever going to accuse Paul of not caring about truth. And he would not put truth and character against each other. He would not say it's either truth or it's character. He's going to say it's both and. And so Paul loves the truth. He doesn't pursue truth to the exclusion of character. And so this means that when we mentor others, we aren't just discussing whether our beliefs are right. It's really easy for a certain kind of personality to be focused exclusively on on matters of truth and arguments. There's a, there's, a, there's a kind of personality that loves those things. I'd actually group myself in. I love those things. But we have to also discuss openly the ways we may be falling short of addressing the issue of character in our own souls. Addressing how we live, not just how we believe. These three things aren't, aren't exhaustive, but they are some principles, I think, to help you if you are a potential mother or father in the faith. Take them to heart. Second, though, I want us to consider another group, those who are potential sons and daughters in the faith. Uh, what if you are a young person who is perhaps in Timothy's shoes? What should you do and how, you sh- how should you approach being mentored? Let me mention a few things. The first is be proactive. Um, seek out what you need. Do not be afraid if you see an older Christian whose life you have observed and who you respect, to go to them and say, I want to go deeper with the Lord. Would you spend time sharing what you've learned with me? Now, I know that feels like the hardest thing in the world to ask another person, but you need to be willing to ask it. And by the way, I'm trying to be arbitrary about the dates, the the ages and stuff, because you may be in your 40s or 50s or 60s and feel like you need someone to spend one-on-one time investing in you. So when I say younger, I mean spiritually younger. I don't just mean physically younger. But you need to be willing to go and ask them, will you invest yourself in me? I think expressing your own need and desire for this is good and it's right. Please don't be bashful. 
You know, Timothy is wise enough to ask for advice and help. That's why this letter was written, right? This is, this is sort of a fault in our own day. We think that it's a sign of weakness to seek out help. We think that if we show any signs of weakness and there's something wrong with us, um, it is a resounding, repetitive message of our own day that we should each be able to say, I am enough, as we stand on the edge of a mountain and look over a huge canyon or something. Um, that's Instagram. Instagram's not real life, okay? Um, and asking for help is another way of saying I'm not enough, and we can't bring ourselves to do that. We can't bring ourselves to say I'm not enough or something like that. And so we think saying please help me means something is really wrong with me. What does scripture say? Proverbs 27, 17 says iron sharpens iron. One man sharpens another. You have Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10. Two are better than one. We always think this is a passage about marriage, but it applies to all sorts of situations. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. We need other people. A fool says, I don't need anybody else. I'll just do this on my own. Or I'll never ask for help because that would be a sign of weakness. Proverbs is saying you need to be sharpened. Ecclesiastes is saying you're going to fall down. You need help. In other words, it assumes that you are not enough. That is the message of the Bible. You are not enough. Are you alone at the moment? Are you, are you in need of someone to walk alongside of you? Don't be bashful to reach out. I think God would convince you in Scripture to reach out and ask, you for, ask for help. Uh, Timothy needed Paul. He's, 15 years they've known each other. He's still writing to Paul and asking him for advice. Uh, whenever I find myself in a sticky situation, I pick up my phone and I call Charlie Wingard, uh, one of the men who was at my ordination. And, and I still need help. I still need advice. I need the advice from somebody who's been in weird, you find out as an elder, just you have weird stuff to deal with that they didn't break down for you in seminary, you know? <laughs> you went through your polity class and you never had to think about someone who did this and then this and then they moved over here and they never moved this and suddenly your, your, your eyes are crossed because you can't see through it all. And you need someone to come and just cut through it and help you out. Um, so you still need this, right? You need an older man. You need an older woman in your life to show you how to live before the face of God. I actually will say, if, you are, if you're a child and your parents are believers, you should consider yourself blessed because I think God has been showing you and giving you someone to mentor and model these things for you. But not every child does have that. Not every child has somebody that they can look at and say, they're modeling for me what a man looks like. They're modeling for me what a woman looks like looks like before the face of God. Um, so let's be proactive. Let's see our need for help and let's do something about it. If you are in need of help, ask for it. The second principle I would give to those who are young in the faith is this, be teachable, be open, be eager to learn. Um, now this goes along with the first principle. Obviously reaching out means that you're teachable, I think. Uh, reaching out means that you realize that you need help. Um, but it's really important that we be humble and receptive to receiving, not just instruction in the truth, but instruction in character. And it's really important for me to mention being humble because 
um, young people are not always humble. Just because they're young doesn't mean that they're going to treat the person talking to them the way that they might. Um, many people become defensive if someone points out flaws or, or weaknesses in them. Uh, the more you get to know somebody, the more ready they're going to be to actually notice some of the areas of your life where the greatest weaknesses are starting to show. And so when you say, hey, please mentor me, please spend time with me, you're opening yourself up to criticism. And you need to realize you're doing that because the criticism is something that's good. It's something that you need. You wouldn't, it's things you wouldn't see if they weren't there to tell you about them. Um, and actually, we can become more defensive, especially when it comes to the area of character. Because if someone looks at us and says, you know, you're especially sensitive in this area and you're not open to, to, to being corrected, that hurts because it's not just about our beliefs, something that's outside of ourselves and objective, but it's almost, it almost hurts more because it's our character they're talking about. You're talking about me. You're telling me there's something wrong with me. And unless we're ready to hear there's something wrong with us, we're going to be very defensive. And that's why I say we need to be humble. Um, Paul is talking at one point. He says, look, you need to admonish the lazy. If you know lazy people, you need to talk to them. Laziness is not a knowledge flaw. It is a character flaw, right? He's saying admonish somebody who's lazy. Correct someone who's lazy. And what listening to that correction might mean is hearing from an older person that you're, in this case, being lazy, right? You need to work harder in your life. Be teachable. Be ready to hear it. Be ready to hear those hard things about yourself that you normally would not want someone to say. Being teachable is so important. And then last, definitely not least, these are, these are almost starting points. This is not the be-all, end-all uh, manual of, of mentoring or being mentored. But the last one is this. Make sure that you are Christ-focused. Make sure that you are Christ-focused. Here's what happens. Um, as a young person, you spend time with someone, you find encouragement from this person, and yet over time it is possible to become more of a disciple of this person than you are of Jesus. You can become very attached to this person. Uh, I'll never forget uh, John Miller, my first pastor when I, was, uh, when I was younger. I was a teenager, brand new to the faith, and it was announced that he was moving from Kansas to Texas. And it was like my, having my whole world ruined. Um, because I had built my Christian faith sort of around this man and his advice and his view of things. And then hearing that he's going to move to Texas, I just found myself thinking, what am I supposed to do now? He was pointing me to Jesus, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't getting extremely attached to this person. And it turns out making him very much a center of my spiritual universe. I think that was a weakness of what I was doing. You know, the goal of all of these things when we mentor one another or when we're with one another is we're walking side by side to the same destination, right? We're both walking and we're fixing our eyes on the celestial city together. But part of that journey means that we're setting our eyes on Jesus together, not on each other. So we're not making each other the focus of our spiritual life. And so this means that the goal of discipleship is for us to love Jesus and increase in our trust of Jesus. We should make that the goal, not nearness to this other person. Um, by the way, this is a word for the young and the old. Right? This is a word for all of us. Make it your aim to drive one another to Jesus. Look what Paul does in this letter. He, notice this about Paul. He's never going, hey, Timothy, look at me. Hey, Timothy, uh, put your hope in me. Trust in me. Hey, Timothy, come over here. Timothy, you don't write to me often enough. 
Timothy, Timothy, <laughs> Timothy, no, he's, he's, he's always saying, look, what he, look just, just look at our reading today. What does he do with Timothy? He prays Timothy receives grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's got this Christ-centered focus in his relationship with this young man. Instead of self-centered discipleship where he's gathering this young man to himself, he's driving Timothy away from Paul and towards Jesus. Faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, hope in Jesus, life in Jesus. Everything that he needs, all coming from the knowledge of Christ his Savior. That is a good leader. Pointing him to Jesus. Um, I have learned this personally. Your, your mentors can't fail you. They can fail you bad. People can fail you. Church leaders can and will fall short. It, it is heartbreaking when it happens. Sometimes it's more dramatic than others. Sometimes they just break your heart. Sometimes they sin grievously. But if they're leading you to Christ, then remember this. They have still done the most important thing they could do. So here's the promise. The promise is people will fail you. Don't follow people. Follow Jesus. Jesus will never fail you. So follow the one who won't fail you. If we make it our aim, if we make it our goal to pursue Christ, then all of the work will be worth it. In the coming weeks, we're going to get some deeper insights into these men, these two men and their respective callings and their friendship, and their, their discipleship together. But, but please don't lose sight of the goal. The goal is to be sons and daughters in the faith, to grow in maturity so that one day we can serve others in such a way that we might be a father or mother in the faith to someone else. Disciples, making disciples, making disciples. This is God's plan for the church that Jesus builds. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would be living and active in your church, that we would stir one another up not only to good works, not only to love for you, but also to greater maturity, so that in Christ Jesus we could all be built up together. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, Make us willing to receive instruction and truth so that, we can, so that we can all fulfill the goal that you have for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Mm-hmm.